Welcome to Grace on the Go. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go. This episode is a sermon from Sunday, August 22nd, 2021, called All Things New, given by Pastor Jonathan Dinger. The scripture passage highlighted for today's sermon comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, I make all things new. Well, God's grace and his mercy and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Um, you know, as I was, uh, as I was looking at this, um, at this piece, we love this theme, the whole idea of, uh, of making a new thing. But when we're saying that, as I gather with pastors, especially in Idaho and Southern Idaho, going from about, uh, you know, from Boise all the way through Twin and then up through Pocatello and up to Ashton, what I hear more often than, than not when we're really relaxed or we're just having lunch is I hear guys saying, I just want it to go back to normal. I just want it to go back to normal. Does that resonate with any of you? I just want, I don't know, is there such a thing anymore? I mean, I don't even know if there ever was. And one of the things that I think is challenging for us is when we hear this phrase, behold, I make all things new, that can be exciting for some and for others that can be terrifying. Um, I, I don't know if you want, you know, as you, as you see little memes that come across the internet and through your email or on social media or wherever it is, there often is a line that kind of follows of yearning for the good old days. We yearn for the good old days. And I thought to myself, my dad was one of these people who I would argue with because he would tell me all the time, oh man, the world's just going down the toilet. And, uh, I just want the good old days. And I said, oh, the good old days with polio and measles and smallpox and the good old days. Like, for instance, you remember this? I don't know about you. So I'm, six, I'm 60, almost 61. I remember the days of driving cross country. We went every summer. We went to do the whole grand tour of family. So we left from New York City and we would go west. We'd go Midwest and west and down to Texas and all those things. We always kept in our car like extra bottles of oil and repair things, tire repair stuff. And I mean, we had a whole, there was a whole like person reserved for all the things that we did. I get in the car now and drive 1,200 miles. I don't even think about it. I don't even think about it. That's kind of amazing to me when I think about that. Because I have all kinds of vivid memories of on the side of the road with an overheated radiator and fixing tires and, you know, hearing a clunk, clunk, clunk in the transmission. And that was constant. And I'm going, not that it never happens now, but I'm just kind of astonished. Just as one dumb little example. Because I think there is this yearning for that nostalgia as we grapple with all the junk that we've had to go through in the last year and a half, almost two years it's going to be approaching. And it preceded that with animosity and adversarial and nastiness and conversations and politics and this and that. All of that stuff, you just kind of go, huh, can we be done? When do we get the good old days? And it's interesting to me because here's a little bit of data on that. And I would use these things with my dad when he was alive sometimes. I was never mean. But I would say, oh, those good old days. Where life, you know, did you know that life expectancy is more than doubled in the last 150 years? For thousands of years, average life expectancy was 30. And now it's in the 70, around the world, 71 Child mortality in the last 200 years has plummeted to about 4%, which is still horrifying, of kids dying before the age of 5. And in 1820, 40% of kids died. 1820, that's not that long ago. 
Illiteracy is plunged to 14% today. It was 88% in the year 1800. Extreme poverty has dropped to about 10% today. It was close to 90% in 1820. I mean, those good old days. Now, you know, it all depends on what you're thinking about. And I'll talk about it a little bit because I, I have some yearning for certain things too. I have some yearning for some certain ways we talked, ways we treated each other, ways that we interacted and so forth. Um, But on the whole, it's really true to be able to say this. Despite all of this information, people are incredibly pessimistic. They're very pessimistic, especially in countries where things have improved the most. According to a 2015 poll, vast majority of respondents from the U.S., and from Great Britain, Sweden, Germany, Australia, and France think that the world is getting worse, not better. Now, why is that the case? And I'm just going to give you a couple. We could have a long, long conversation about this. But why is that? And there's a couple of simple ones. One is, we take what we have for granted. I mean, now I jump in the car and drive 1,200 miles, and I take that for granted. You know, now we're upset if anything ever goes wrong. People... We live in a broken world. You should expect it to go wrong. It doesn't function properly. And that doesn't take us off the hook when it's our fault. But, you know, it's like getting into a car and you know the transmission's bad and then you're mad every time it won't shift into third gear. Why are you mad? It's broken. And so, and yet we live a life as if, oh, I'm stunned this happened to me. Oh, I got sick. Shocker. You know, it's a broken world. And so that yearning and that longing for those good old days, we take things for granted. The second thing is we're filled with biases. Think about this. In my lifetime, 1967, I was seven years old. The United States was embroiled in the Vietnam War. Protest marches were taking place around the country. Crime was surging. Race riots were breaking out in Detroit, Newark, Milwaukee, and other cities. Americans lived in smaller homes, ate worse food, worked more hours, got more sick, and and died on average seven years earlier than today. And then came 1968, which was worse. So it's fascinating when we think of it, we're biased. We also have biases. We all got them. You think you don't? Think again. I do too. Third thing, the news media accentuates the bad. Got to sell papers. Got to get likes. Got to get hits. Accentuates the bad. Good news don't sell. What has changed, in my opinion, what has changed is our faith, our trust in one another, in those who have been placed in authority over us in this world, in this what we call the kingdom of the left hand, not God's kingdom. But we've lost trust in one another, in institutions. We have lost trust in a providential that God will actually provide, that God actually is still engaged in our world, that he loves us, hasn't abandoned us. I I say this to people sometimes when they're going through hard things. And please get me right on this. I'm not belittling hard things. But I sometimes, when the time is right, try to find a way to say sometime, you think this is bad? It is bad, but God's there with you. Imagine for a moment if God withdrew his gracious presence from our world completely. Just imagine. 
in spite of the hurt, in spite of the horror, in spite of the evil which is encountered in our world constantly. We see it broadcast on the news, and of course it's accentuating the bad, but we see it even in our communities, in our homes, we see it. Imagine if God chose to teach us a lesson to withdraw his gracious presence completely from this world for 24 hours. You want to, you want to see a horror, a horror movie? That would be horror. Because God continues to remain with us. He continues to temper us, heal us, encourage us, forgive us, show us grace. He continues to provide life and breath and abundance. And we take it for granted. And we have biases. And everyone around us accentuates the bad. I'm here today to tell you he's ready to do a new thing. God is ready to do a new thing. And he is constantly doing a new thing. If you have a Bible, you have it on your phone, or if you look in the bulletin, Revelation 21. This is our thing. And the way he starts out is powerful also. If you're a Bible, if you like to study the scriptures, when you come across a passage that says, behold, you should highlight, you should highlight what comes next. Uh, teachers, you know what this is like. It's like when you're in class and you're, you're lecturing. And you know, when I did lesson plans... I put in nothing, when I taught kids, I taught for seven years, in my lesson plans, I don't teach kids things I don't want them to remember. I have no use for trivia. I don't care if you win trivia night at the tavern. I don't care. What I'm interested in, if I teach it to you, it matters. There's a reason I am giving this to you. But there are still some things which I want them to really pay attention to. And so like, I'm, if, if, I'm, if I was teaching on that, I would stop and I would say, okay, everyone, eyes on me. Everyone, I ain't going on until it's eyes on me. Because this thing you got to know. And this thing you got to get right. I mean, I even do it with like my First Communion kids now. When we do First Communion. Why is it important that Jesus' body and blood are physically present in the Lord's Supper? Because if Jesus is physically and truly there, you can be sure that his gifts of forgiveness and eternal life are there too. And I say, I want that, I need you to remember. I don't know if you guys remember it, but that's what I want you to remember. And so he starts off with a behold, pay attention. And if I had to say something to you today, if there's something I'm hoping you walk away from, the, the kind of the, the faith application piece is, I'm hoping that's one on our mind and heart. As you begin your day tomorrow, I'm praying this for our teachers. I'm praying this for every student that goes to school, is before you engage in that day to stop and say, God, what new thing are you going to do today? What new thing are you going to do? Because to be honest, I think we're guilty sometimes of saying, God, I want you to do an old thing. I want you to do a thing that I'm comfortable with. I want you to do a thing that I understand. I want you to do a thing that I can control. And God is far more interested in doing new things. A new thing in you. It may be tied to an old thing, like a cross that happened 2,000 years ago. It may be tied to an old thing, but he is constantly wanting to do that new thing in your heart. If our prayer every day, think how the world would transform. Lord, what new thing will you do today? Because I know you're with me. And so that's my prayer. Okay, point number one. So let me unpack this a little bit. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was new, no more. Here's my point on this one. I love this. God is not obliter obliterating he uh, heavens and earth in order to do nothing. He wants to make a whole brand new one. A whole brand new one. Here's the point. If you jot notes, creation matters to God. It matters to God. 
And so, and yet there's a right path to follow. Creation matters to God, but it is not God. And so when we find people worshiping at the temple of environmentalism or worshiping a created thing, Paul has very severe words for that. The Old Testament, has, those are idols. Those are created things. You worship the one who created it, not the created thing. And the devil is thrilled with people who worship created things. Loves it. Loves it. When I lived in New York City, I moved there in 1966. I was six years old. And New York City was a cesspool. It was a cesspool. It was a horrible place. And, uh, you know, you never went anywhere alone, even in the daytime. You didn't dare go to Central Park alone. You, uh, you know, riding the subways was an adventure. There, and there was graffiti everywhere. Every inch of every car, inside and out, was covered. Um, the smog was horrible. We lived next to a bay by the Throgs Neck Bridge and the Whitestone Bridge. It went to the South Bronx. We could see the burned-out tenements in, South, in the South Bronx. We could see them from, from our apartment where we lived in Queens. And no one, in fact, you didn't, go, you didn't go within 20 feet of that water because you were afraid that the toxic sludge would destroy you. It was horrible. By the time I went to college, and when I actually, I should say, when I came back from college, I remember the year distinctly, it was 1980. I was back from college, and my buddy said, come on, let's go swimming. I said, where are we going? In the bay. What? In that span of time, we took care of, we took care of, that which God had created. And we took care of it so we could swim in it and fish in it. And life returned. It's amazing creation that God has has built for us. God cares about creation. It It is critical. And by the way, you're part of that creation too. Your body, your mind, your heart. God cares about those things. So he's not obliterating the created things. He is making all things new. And it is a creation the likes of which none of us have ever seen. And so that's the first thing. God is making a new heaven and a new earth because creation matters. But creation is not God. Secondly is this. I don't know if you've ever seen these. I'm going to see how this plays in this service especially. I'll preface it a little bit. I'm going to tell you how many, how many whatevers does it take to change a light bulb. This is Christians. Okay, different tribes of Christians, different brands of Christians. Okay. How many Christians does it take to change light bulb? If you're charismatic, I don't know if you're familiar with that term. If you're charismatic, how many does it take? Only one because their hands are already up in the air. (laughs) Pentecostals, it takes 10, one to change the light bulb and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. Presbyterians, I don't know if you know this, none because lights will come on and off at predestined times. If you're Roman Catholic, none. They only use candles. Uh, If you're Baptist, at least 15. One to change the light bulb, three committees to approve the change, and decide who brings the potato salad and the fried chicken. For the Episcopalians, one to call the electrician, and two to talk about how much better the old way was. For the Methodists, it's undetermined how many it takes. Whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, turnip bulb, or tulip bulb. Bring a bulb of your choice to the Sunday lighting service and a covered dish to pass. Lutherans, how many Lutherans? None. Lutherans don't believe in change. And then there's the Amish. What's a light bulb? I think that's funny, but okay. Second one is this. Here's what God says. The former things have passed away. For many of us, that can be a scary phrase. 
when we long for the former things, for God to say those former things are going away. The former things have passed away. He who sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he says, write this down. These words are true. You can trust them. I'm making all things new. The former things have passed away. So sometimes we go, wait, change? Wait a minute. Because in the end, I get people say this to me all the time. Well, God accepts me just the way I am. And I go, yeah, but he loves you so much. He ain't keeping you that way. He's going to change you. And people use that excuse all the time. This is just the way I am. Wait, 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 wait. If that was true for all of us, that would be hellish. If we all stayed the way we were when God found us, God is constantly in the transformation business, constantly in the change business. And the problem is this. Here's the problem with change. We make mistakes on one of the two things. We either ask God, get me back to the way it was, or if I'm going to do a new thing, God, I want you to do it my way. I got this plan for the new me, and I want you to agree with me. Oh, really? Right? We do that all the time. I've, oh, I've done the research, and this is how I feel, and this is my personal truth, and this is how I am. God, I need you to get on board with me. Get on the bus. Instead of us saying, God, where are you leading? One of my friends, Dr. Van Dyke, says it all the time. I pray for my friends and my family. God, do whatever it takes. It really gets challenging when we pray the same prayer for ourselves. Do whatever it takes. Because, Lord, what it is, is God is saying, here I am, follow me. Eyes fixed on Jesus. And far too often, I'm looking at myself and saying, God, I want you to agree with me. And God is saying, no, I'd rather you agree with me. And so that's the idea of change. He's making new things. The former things are going away. That old thing that you thought you want to, that definition that you're making of yourself, every one of them comes to us from God, who loves us, who loves us, who has restored us. And who has proven that love in a cross and an empty tomb. Third thing. I love how he says this. And it's relationship, not religion. Please note this. Many, many people seem to think the end times and heaven and all those things, that's transactional. If I do enough good stuff, I get in. If I have enough of the right connections, I get in. If I can build a proper resume, I get in. My whole life is this this series of of, uh, transactions. And instead, it's always relationship. Here's the proof. I saw the holy city, because here's the picture of heaven, right? I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The two beloved become one. In this this veil of tears, on this side of the glass, we're not as one as God would love us to be. We get hints and pieces, don't we? We get ideas. We, get, we hear an echo of a chorus. We hear it here and there. And God blesses us so richly to give us those encouragement, words of grace, words of forgiveness, words of restoration and love. But in heaven, it will be the perfect union of husband and wife. Perfect union. This is one reason, by the way, that we're kind of big on marriage. Because God uses this metaphor for his relationship with us. And so I love this. It just moves me because I'm longing for that. And I think every human is longing for that, is for that perfect union of the beloved together. And so he says, I saw that. So it's not transactional. It's relational. And then he goes on and says, 
Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. God, is, God wants to be with us. God is longing to be with us, to spend time with us, wanna, constantly in communication and in love and in grace. This is not transactional. This is fully relational. It always has been. It always will be. And yet it must be made new in us. God is constantly calling us to that. And the fourth thing I wanted to share with you on this is the greatest of all promises is contained in this passage. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And it's interesting, when I read that, I'm going, no tears. It almost sounds as if tears are bad. Almost sounds that way. And, and, you know, as a Lord of the Rings geek, um, there's this scene at the end of the whole thing where Frodo is going to sail off and he's leaving his dear, dear friends behind, Sam and Merry and Pippin and these guys, and he's going off and uh, Gandalf with him and so forth and uh, this lovely kind of conclusion to it. And yet they're weeping. They're weeping. They're sad that their dear friend with whom they've gone through so many trials and so much life together, they've endured so much together, he's going to be gone and they're crying. And Gandalf says, I love those words, not all tears are an evil. And he's right, isn't he? He's right. And I say this when I do funeral services and stuff. When we weep here, they're not wrong. It's not bad. We say, oh, you have your faith or they're in heaven. Those tears are right here, but not there. Those tears are right here. They're correct here on this, we call it a veil of tears. We call it because we can't see through the glass clearly. We don't have a perfect understanding. What we imagine heaven to be is a pale, pale shadow of what God will ultimately reveal to us in which our minds cannot grasp or comprehend. God is going to reveal himself in ways overwhelming to us, in incredible ways. And so on this side of heaven, not all tears are evil. But God will heal in such a way that those tears will be no more, no mourning, no sadness. If there's tears of any, it would be tears that we can't hold back from joy. But Chris said something to me this week that I really, really appreciated because this reinforces the idea of relationship. Because look at how those tears go away. Our Savior himself, with the tenderness of his own touch, reaches out, and what does it say? He will wipe those tears. Because he knows those tears. He knows why those tears came. And he walked with us and wept with us when those tears were flowing from us here on this side, in this broken side. And with great joy and with great tenderness, as the greatest gift he could ever give us, he will, with his own hand, wipe your tear and replace it with inexpressible joy. That's the new. And that's a new my heart longs for, my soul longs for, is to have that. It's the greatest of all promises, the death that the, the, the final victory over death with his own hand, his own presence, wiping it away. And the last thing is here. You know, it's funny in my Christian life, and uh, I, I do tell people, I'm glad when all the, that all the videotapes have been lost of me in college and so forth. And, um, and I'm glad God is so patient with me. And it's the, you don't know the height of irony and, and that it is that I stand here before you. <laughs> And have the joy of sharing grace with you. Because I needed it as much as anybody. Um, but you know in your Christian journey. Isn't it kind of neat to watch uh, things actually get better? That you actually find yourself 
more in prayer. Maybe your patience has increased. I need more of that still. Maybe those fruit of the Spirit have started to show up more in you. There's a really a hunger to be in the Word, or there's an eagerness to serve others. And you kind of go, gosh, Lord, thank you for, for making those things happen, because that wasn't how I was before. And you're growing that in me. And in fact, almost if you had the list of it, you might start saying, oh, I got that one covered. And I got that one covered. And I got that one covered. And here's what I'm telling you. God makes all things new. Even the pieces I think I got right, when I get to heaven, I'm going to look back and say, wow, I did not have it right. Because God's going to renew it all. I don't know about you, if you're like me, when we confess our sins almost every week, I come up and I say, God, you're going to forgive me for this again? Are you going to, you got any repeaters here with me? And so I go, God, are you going to be so faithful that you'll forgive it again? Every single piece of you, every single piece of me, will be made brand new according to God's original intent and design. And those who have died in the Lord already are experiencing that. And we are anticipating our union with them in our Savior for all eternity. God is constantly doing new things. In the incarnation, God came as a human being. It was a new thing. In the cross, God saved in a new way. In an empty tomb, it was a new thing never seen before. God sent his Holy Spirit to rule in every human heart. It was a new thing. God is constantly doing new things. And so my prayer, my hope, is that we can say, God, what new thing will you do in me? Because if you are doing the new thing, it will be blessed. And it will bring glory to you. And it will bless us, your children. To God be the glory. Amen. If you have any questions or comments, email them to podcast at gracepocatello.org. And make sure to subscribe to our channel to stay up to date on sermons and classes at Grace Lutheran Church in Pocatello, Idaho. This podcast is designed so that you can take grace with you anywhere you go.